Case file number 4.8. Credit card fraud 2. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So, as it turns out, we just exited the time warp where we did our Ukraine special in the first season and came back to here to record the second episode of the credit card fraud series. Gave me vertigo. Yeah. Well, one of the funny things is, and I don't, I haven't really figured out if there's any relationship to it. It might have to do something with the sanctions, but in this time uh, where the Ukraine, where the Ukraine invasion is still going on, Russia seems to have cracked down on some of its carding shops and stuff more than usual. Oh, really? Again, we're not getting great news about what's going on there, but right, yeah. everything that happens right now, it might be coincidental, but it seems like, why would you be spending effort on this when everything is going nuts? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Otherwise? And yeah. it might be something to do with, hey, now they're, all the credit card fraud is, is, is like directly affecting us right now. And we can't pawn <laughs> any of that stuff off on anybody else. So... We need to crack down on this fraud right now because there's just no margin for error. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Maybe. I mean, I'm just figuring. So where last we left our Intrepid Heroes, it was about the end of the first PCI set of standards. We talked a little Mm -hmm. about how those things were weak. Well, at the end of 3.0, starting 2.0 was released in 2010. Okay. And... It added things like key management for VPNs and SSH tunnels, being a lot more specific about data encryption. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is also where they mandated software patching and vulnerability management. Ooh. And the thing is, if you remember going way back to the first episode that we ever did, mm-hmm. the episode entitled My Favorite Virus, yep, yeah. happened in about 2003 where that era right there 2002 to about 2004 we got all of these worms and security as a practice information security as a practice was like wait maybe we want to do patch management maybe we want to do vulnerability assessment screen and so you get to 2010 mm-hmm. around then that's when the pci standards actually started to require it now there's a couple of ways you could think about that. One is that they had a lot of language that was a little bit more general about a well-managed network. That was absolutely a part of what PCI-1, the PCI-1X stuff all said. Right. But it left a lot of room for interpretation. Now, you and I have both in, been in compliance places where we had to pass a standard, but nobody told us what the standard was. So there was an yeah. impulse to make the standards as low as you could reasonably get away with to 
get as much stuff passed as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Another way to look at it, and frankly, I think the first way is more likely to be what happened, but the other way to look at it, to give them as much credit, is that they presumed that they wrote the standard, they could write the standard once and say, hey, there's a level of expectation, a level of due diligence. That's going to be a moving target. Mm-hmm. And industry is going to dictate that over time, but we don't think we should need to necessarily explicitly spell it out. Right. But yeah. if that was what they were thinking at the time, they found that over time they needed to explicitly spell it out. <laughs> and I could say, as I said before, in the significant breach I was part of, they needed to be explicit. That retailer would have been. They had a tendency to get away with as much as they could. Um, part of their business model was cutting an awful lot of expenses, and IT was one of them. Um, mm, some really surprising things I found there. We were tr- I was trying to back into like a hardware inventory, an inventory of servers. So I was mm-hmm. like, oh, well, they're depreciating them as capital purchases, right? I should be able to go to the accounting department and at least have a place to start from. And no. No, they didn't do it that way. They were in order to kind of minimize what they had to do. They mm-hmm. weren't even taking IT assets as capital purchases. They were just everything was purchased as a product, and they weren't tracking that to depreciate it. Oh, really? On the taxes. They were probably yeah, well. leaving a million dollars on the table in taxes every year because of that. Jeez. Give me just general swag. I was like, you have a lot of boxes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Pennywise, pound foolish, as they say. So 3.0 was released in 2013. And so like that was the end of the of, of that, hey, maybe we need to be more explicit about where you use cryptography and how you maintain your systems. And like we said in the, in the uh, tail end of the of the 1.1 to 1.2 transition, they mandated DMZs instead okay. of just saying, we're going to let that network architecture be kind of up to you. They had to be explicit about it. So mm, right. at 3.0, the version 3.1 was issued in 2015 and 321 which is our current version it was released in 2018 okay and you might imagine from some of our of our other play episodes and you know, about ssl which i think mm-hmm. was episode three all comes into <laughs> yeah. play here oh, um man. Yeah. there were several major ssl vulnerabilities that happened what got us to completely get off of SSL 3.0 to TLS 1 to TLS 1.1 to 1.2. Well, this was that time period exactly. And they, in response, like a lot of other organizations and systems, very quickly revised their standards to keep up with all of these vulnerabilities. So like a very marked response improvement from what they started with was, which was something that didn't require them to be very specific to something that was not just specific, but reactive to the changes in the, in the IT security landscape. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, their process matured over the time, to- over the time that happened. It wasn't always perfect to begin with, but this is, you know, just the data security side on the data security side of things. They're still focused on security of authentication, security at rest, but mm-hmm. not necessarily things like, what has been called, and I'm not sure if this is just the term that I've used when discussing it with other folks that think in in, in the weird ways that, the, that I do, or if this is actually the term, but uh, <laughs> I like to call it record level security, which is that you have a record 
and the parts of it that need to be secure are secured with their own key. And then you have a key broker management system. So even if you get a dump of the data, mm -hmm. you can't get the stuff. What they have done instead of that kind of thing is that they've tokenized a lot of that secure information and been able to segregate it within the system. So you can look at the table, you might be able to dump out the table that has right. some of that information, but the actual important security information like the card data isn't pulled through that because that's tokenized and you didn't have the ability to do a join against the more secure table mm -hmm. that actually has the card information. So again, a lot of technique improvement over time. Right, right, yeah. And if you've seen the history of how databases work, one of the reasons we had problems with Y2K is because performance and the amount of data you were using was super important way back in the day. And now we have a lot more, we have a lot more hardware to throw at the problem, but we need a lot of like parallelization of tasks and stuff like that. Mm, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So some of the ideas behind database management have gotten, have climbed this level of, level of sophistication. So you don't have some of the concerns that would have led you to set, to be very draconian about storing it in one place and being very careful about exactly how, the size of the records and stuff. Because you have mm -hmm. more disk space. Expanding the table space was a much less arduous and involved task. Right. Yeah, exactly. So in addition to all of the data security side of things, which we all know is pretty important because every retailer has to maintain their own transaction records, which makes everybody that sells anything with credit cards, not just a retailer, but also a security company. Mm -hmm. We have the behavioral analysis that the credit card companies do. And I believe I read even some of the, um, even some of the retailers do about account activity and fraudulent patterns. They do things like location mapping, you know, your credit card was used in two places in a very short time period apart. Right. Usage patterns about like, oh, you never charged more than a, a hundred, couple hundred dollars. And all of a sudden somebody bought a two grand thing or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they bought something that was easily convertible, uh, like a prepaid debit card, which is becoming any kind of prepaid gift card, debit card kind of thing is becoming more and more a way of getting money from a credit card to something that is negotiable and untraceable or very hard to trace right. by the carter trying to exploit this stuff. Right, right. And we've had various patterns of real-time confirmation. Back when a lot of this electronic stuff of both the debit and credit world was first coming into being, you would be able to see the transaction come up in almost real time. And in fact, I believe some of the some of the credit card companies, I think Visa might have been somebody different, uh, had it in their commercial of like somebody buying a latte or whatever and coming back and seeing on their phone it coming up on their phone. Oh, shown right up on the account. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Huh. yeah it's like living in the future is awesome. I don't know if I would ever even like take advantage of that. Well, I don't know exactly what happened there. I spent longer than I probably should have trying to figure out what was going on there, <laughs> but behind the curtain, one of two things may have happened. One is that right a little bit after that was a little, was around 2008 or so when that recession hit. And we know that banks were 
doing some pretty shady things. Basically, the the lower income, the lower credit worthiness of their customers, the more likely they were to to do shady things. And <laughs> right, yeah. And one of the shady things that they did, which was pretty well documented, is they state take like all the transactions that you did, and they order them in most expensive to least expensive. Hmm, okay. So if the most expensive one or close to the most expensive ones would overdraw you, they charge you for the overdraw for every single transaction that happened after that. Yeah. I, re- I remember back before, like I had a fairly well-paying job, lived like paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Getting hit with like, yeah, you, you overdraft here. And then like, we're, we're going to charge you an overdraft on this one and this one, and then some fees because of you overdraft and then some fees because you don't have any money and you have a negative like uh, balance now. And it was like, it was just poor tax. Exactly. But importantly, for what we're talking about here, they, they can't do that if every transaction is real time. If everything happens mm-hmm. sequentially because it, it posts as soon as it happens. Right, right. So maybe that's the reason that that stopped happening. Are you, are you implying that uh, both banks and credit card companies would be in cahoots to screw over uh, the average man? Um. Of course, we live in a capitalist society. <laughs> I mean, oh, we're okay. not going to. Oh, that's right. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I personally think that we can get to a fairer world, and um, but the history of the use of capital does not uh, tend in that direction. But yeah, regardless of what we believe or what we want to believe, the fact of the matter is. The, the more you go back to these large financial systems, the more you see um, never a, a, a greater hive of scum and villainy uh, in, the fi- <laughs> in the financial world. It's just like the history of it is is pretty bad. Right, or, yeah. There are a lots of pretty bad instances in history. I, I should probably say uh, it's a big subject. And <laughs> well, I guess the one thing that I will say is is one of the very important parts about us getting better one of the necessary but not sufficient conditions is transaction security for all of this stuff right right dealing with fraud and having confidence in the entire transaction system i believe is a very important piece of getting to the world i think that we that we want to believe that we're in or want to believe we can get to right which yeah. is what this is all about <laughs> so another explanation would be that by creating a delay in the system, it gave them time to do things like real-time confirmation. Hmm, okay. When you get a phone call, and I don't know if every app does this or, or any apps do this at this point, or if it's a phone con- or if it's confirmation through your phone app, like your phone is your token or your mm-hmm. alternate token, because you already have the card as one token. Yeah, yeah. Then you can do validation of that transaction. And if they don't have any space between they receive the transaction and when they post and debit the money out of your out of your account or post mm-hmm. the, cre- the credit transaction, they don't have the ability to do any response there. Right, yeah, yeah. And that's an even bigger deal with debit cards because debit cards are basically between you and the bank, whereas there's a lot more liability shield for you, the customer, when you're using credit cards. Either the credit card company or increasingly the retailer is on the hook for fraudulent transactions. We'll get into that right. in a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But some of the victories of big data have to do with this kind of transaction. 
one of the, I believe the, in the case in, la, in last week, the Heartland uh, was notified about their big breach by, I believe it was MasterCard. Oh, really? And Yeah. And I know the breach that I was involved in, another credit card company gave them their, what, what I would call in the SOC world, the alerting event that started the whole incident response forensic process. Interesting. Okay. And my understanding, the paraphrased uh, explanation that was given to me, because I came in after the breach had occurred, right. after this notification and everything, uh, I was really part of the cleanup team more than anything, was that the credit card company said, we're seeing a lot of fraudulent transactions on credit cards, and we correlate all of those cards to having been used at your locations. Okay, yeah. And like all over, because... In that case of that breach, it was not like one store was breached. It was the, yeah, the entire yeah, yeah. system. So yeah, triangulating all of that to like, it's all of these stores and all these different locations. We definitely got something going on here. Right. And so the, there have been some victories of them using these techniques, uh, not just coming in from the data security side, but also the auditing and behavioral monitoring side. Mm -hmm. So credit card transaction stuff is just a lot of fraud billions of dollars a year right right i think i forgot to pull the current year but it's been five plus billion dollars for a really long time so how do we reduce credit card fraud when we know that transactions can be or possibly are vulnerable to replay the same way that a captured password would be or mm -hmm. a hash system we talked a little bit about things in the Mimi Cats episode. Man, this is another this is another <laughs> one of those greatest hits things. Yeah, call back to previous episodes. Where in SMB1, it was a it was present your hash, and that was mm -hmm. vulnerable to replay. And one of the improvements in SMB2 was it was a challenge system that was not vulnerable to replay. Right, right. Yeah. So your credit card number or all of the information that you that you need for a transaction can be vulnerable to replay. And in person, if the, if the retailer is recording more than they're supposed to be, those bits mm. from the first episode that were right. reserved as read but don't save. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't pull out specific examples, but I know that I'd heard of examples where the retailer was keeping that track information with like the CVV number and whatnot. Is there like a finable offense or... Like well, if, if, if they find out you're actually doing that. That's another thing I wasn't able to find as much as I'd like to, which was mm. penalties and, and basically what PCI does when you fail. Right. Yeah. Because when I dealt with stuff, it was in the PCI one era, but I got the impression that the PCI organization was trying to give us every opportunity to pass their audit. <laughs> i'm not uh, saying we couldn't have failed it i'm saying that they cut us slack when we needed to go back and fix some other stuff they weren't right. hard asses about it yeah i don't want to speak too far out of it especially when i can't present specific information or anything but that was definitely the feeling i got yeah and there's something to be said to both sides of that too yeah but my point being i don't have i wasn't really able to come up with with any real information about PCI actions taken and what they were for. Right. What the penalty, what the penalty phase of that is. If you do have a breach, so there's the I believe it was the level four retailers that are under 20,000 credit card transactions a month or something like that. Maybe it's a year. It's actually where all of the fraud happens, but they have the most 
options in terms of the level of security they apply. And their audit is kind of the most lenient because there's a, you have a lot of choices of things to implement. It's uh, things are optional that could that at other levels are are strict. Well, mm-hmm. if you have a breach, one of the things that they do do is they say, okay, regardless of your size, you're being audited as if you're a level one. Okay. So like you, you prove that you couldn't do it. So we're going to order you to a stricter standard. Right. Right. You may have noticed that you might not have heard of anybody getting kicked off of payment cards because of violations of PCI standards, because they couldn't pass the PCI audit. Right. Right. Yeah. So we don't have any large public case of that happening and what it would take to do that is what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't think that there's a fine system, but there is additional scrutiny. The penalty phase of that particular game show is is not entirely clear to me. Yeah, yeah. I guess like I've, I've never done or dealt with a PCI outside of just like you know studying for certain certs and such. I would want there to be like you know like larger penalties. Yeah. I mean, not entirely akin because you're not dealing with. Um, you know, human lives and stuff like where like the FAA or, you know, um, other space agencies and stuff will like, you know, greatly penalize you if you're not up to snuff and like, you know, there is the potential to, you know, have a catastrophic incident, but there needs to be something other than like a little, like little hand slap to these massive companies. Well, a thing to remember about this kind of regardless of what you think is that the PCI organization is an industry organization. It's not a law enforcement. It's not a government organization. This is self-regulation of the industry. This is not direct regulation by a government entity. This isn't the Justice Department. It's not the Commerce Department. It's the payment card folks. It's all the credit card companies and and debit systems and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's it's also one of those things um, where like, it's, it's good to have them. Um, it's good mm-hmm. to have like a governing body, but you also kind of run into that yeah. issue where if left to their own devices to kind of govern themselves, like who who watches the watchman? Yeah, well, I mean, so like the thing that you worry about with government regulation, we know that this has happened, especially when it comes to uh, mineral rights and natural resource rights. Um, mm-hmm. There's a big issue with that in W's administration, relatively publicly, of regulatory capture of the folks that were in there became beholden to the industry. Mm -hmm. You could come up with examples where kind of the industry trying to regulate itself so the government, so the government didn't put up stricter rules on it. It's kind Mm of built-in capture. Right, yeah. So like that is the risk. That is exactly the risk of allowing an industry to regulate itself because essentially what it is is do what, we as a society need you to do from a consumer protection standpoint, from a safety standpoint, whatever, mm-hmm. or we'll come in and put the screws to you from a right. political point of view. That is the inherent threat when they do this. And every time I'm aware of a gov- of an in- of an industry regulating itself, that's pretty much the reason that they did it. They didn't preemptively do it. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. I don't know exactly if that was part of what PCI was doing, but they were losing billions of dollars in fraud. So yeah, yeah. It makes sense financially to start doing it. But so then we have to start, especially within the era of the internet, we really need to start breaking up two different kinds of transactions. Card present, card not present. Okay. 
in the early 2000s, card present was really what everybody was focused on. Most retailing was happening that with card present transactions. Mm-hmm. Amazon wasn't even that big at that point. That big. It was still not small. Um, <laughs> so we get the chip. Europay, MasterCard, and Visa came together and basically figured out how to use a smart card chip to increase the security of transactions by being very hard to replicate and creates a verifiable token. So card present means you have to have a real card and it's very hard to replicate. Right. Now, if people aren't familiar with what a smart card is, is it's basically an itty bitty computer. So it's the CPU and the memory and stuff Kind of. It's basically an integrated circuit that has more computational power than an integrated circuit, but it doesn't have the power in it to do anything. So when you insert it to do something into a reader, what that reader is doing is actually interacting with it, presenting it with enough power for it to perform an operation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in this case, in the chip on your card, what it's doing is essentially using crypto magic to generate a new CVV number. Okay. So what was originally on your regular Magstripe card, a CVV number that was in the Magstripe is now Uh a new CVV number every time you use the card. Okay. So every transaction has a new CVV number and it's not vulnerable to replay. So the European rollout of this happened in 2003 or started in 2003, which is why they've had it for so much longer longer than us right and they had a system called chip and pin which again you have this little computer and it's going to generate a cvv number but it might not but you could program it and that's how they set it up to not do that unless you put in the proper pin code in order for it to generate a valid cvv number Hmm, okay gotcha so that's how chip and pin works because the smart card is essentially a tiny tiny very special purpose computer and when they implemented it Credit card fraud was fraud was immediately cut by 13% within two years. That's crazy. I didn't know it was that high. They were also getting a lot of problems because of stolen cards out of the mail. And this actually tr- cut that down significantly as well by like half. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've always been like very, or I guess like I was taught at a young age, um, any credit card applications, like take them in, chop them up, um, never just toss them in yeah. the trash. Right. Exactly. Because... One of the simple forms of identity theft is filling that out, getting the card, and having the card sent and stealing the card out of the mailbox just like you did the application or out of the garbage or whatever. Yeah, 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 exactly. Now, the thing was, it was really effective in Europe, and the Europeans did a pretty quick changeover, as I think we've, we've talked about before, anybody who's been overseas it's a lot more likely that you're going to go to like a restaurant and they're going to bring over the point of sale device to the table. So the card never leaves your presence. And yeah, yeah, exactly. they, they need the pin anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, then we have the U S rollout. They're still losing billions of dollars in fraud, but the retailers are really pushing back of replacement of point of sale devices and just overall increased overhead. Mm, okay. And the other thing that we that happened here is that instead of doing chip and pin where that requires a pin, we have chip and sign, where the mm-hmm. pin is not required, but you still mm-hmm. sign the receipt. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I was going to say, I don't know if I've ever encountered it, but no, I have. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure you have. I'm pretty sure <laughs> we've done it. I'm pretty sure when we've had dinner, it's happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it just like, I'm so used to it that it just goes straight over my head. Yeah. Well, in 2015, the credit card companies started making retailers responsible for credit card fraud activity or more responsible, which sped up adoption quite a bit. This led to about an 80% drop in card present fraud. Mm, okay. Uh, and, and I wasn't able to figure out exactly when this change occurred, but at this point, card not present transactions, the retailer is actually responsible for, for most of the fraud at this point. Okay. Card present, uh, it's still more significantly on the credit card company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that makes sense. Like they just had to force their hand. Yeah. So there's been a lot of progress, but where are we really? Well, it turns out that we might have some insight into where things are really from about 2015 to about 2019. We've talked about Brian Krebs a uh, mm-hmm. few times. He's, he's definitely come up. He's done a lot of really oh, yeah. great reporting on the information security scene. I got to say that more than once I've been uh, a little nervous that what I was presenting was basically regurgitating his articles. <laughs> and I think that we add some of our own perspective and, and, and some correlating information that, that aren't in his articles because he's mm-hmm. trying to write single articles. But he's been a really good source for us. And it turns out that his notoriety is beyond just this podcast. So some credit card, some, some credit card, um, some carters decided to open up a marketplace called Brian's club.at in 2015 okay. using Brian Krebs <laughs> name and like, or likeness. Uh, and that's why it's named Brian's club. It's a tweak <laughs> at the nose of Brian Krebs, or at least that's what we'll say, because he has asked them like, Hey, why are you guys doing this? And they haven't <laughs> responded. Um, ah, okay. But it's very interesting. So, in August 2019, they were breached. And whoever breached them managed to get a bunch of information, a lot of their records and stuff, going all the way back to about 2015. Mm-hmm. So pretty much the start of the website, which gives us a real data set that allows us to look into the for real traffic of what's been happening with the credit card numbers. Okay, right. So like, this is not estimates based on what we've detected. This is computation based on not just the cards that went into their system, but how much was bought and how many cards each individual buyer bought, things like that. We have hmm, okay. a level of insight in here that we don't always get. We actually pretty rarely get the, to get this kind of thing. Right, yeah. The FBI might be in a better position, but we're not. <laughs> so the yearly intake in 2015 was about 1.7 million credit cards. 2016 was about it was 2.9 million. 2017 4.9 million. 2018 9.2 million and mm-hmm. then for the January to August bracket of 2019 from the beginning of the year to when the database was was swiped was 7.6 million credit card records, payment card. Mm, records. Okay. So Going up every year on trend, 2019 was still going to be bigger than 2018. Right, yeah. And this is a marketplace. I think we did, we talked about it a little bit this, in the last episode where you have stratification of the whole carding industry from the people that swipe them to the people that validate them, the people that buy them, the people that monetize them. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are the major tasks, but there's some subtasking in the middle there. And all of them have their, their explicit niche in the ecosystem. Right. So the marketplace, a lot of that is, is essentially creating the marriage of one side, the provider side, to the other side, the exploitation side. Right, yeah. So because these come in and basically, these can come in in chunks, it's kind of bursty. It's like, oh, nothing, 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 nothing. This provider managed to pop a retailer that had a lot, or they like they had small retailer, small retailer, small retailer. Oh, we finally got a big one. And so they might drop a large number every once in a while. Right, right, yeah, yeah. But over an aggregate, you'd figure the trend would smooth out over time. Yeah. So we had some information on how much uh, the black market prices are for, for and I'm just basically going to read a little bit of the table. Debit with no pin was 20 to $30. Debit with pin was 110 to $200. Okay. Credit card with no zip code available, 10 to 25. Credit card with the zip code, 25 to 60, which suggests the use in the kinds of credit card transactions that just use the zip code for authentication. Gas pumps. I've always wondered whenever I'm at the gas pump entering the wrong zip code. I don't know if I've tried to like enter the like a wrong one. Does it actually decline it? It will. Okay. And because the the zip code is encoded into the card information, mm-hmm. but I don't know that it does anything more than decline you. Okay. And then the uh so the cash out value for the standard credit or debit card is $400 to $800 and a premium credit card is $1,000. Mm, okay. And then the, the merchant losses, the bank and merchant losses for credit, about $1,000 for debit, about $650. So like money in, money out. You figure with the, with the amount of money we're talking about in terms of what they're paid for and their cash out value, since it's such a multiplier, you figure the failure rate is actually reasonably high. Because right, the market's yeah. going to get reasonably efficient over time. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But so total sales over the period was about 9.1 million credit card records for value in Bitcoin, because they were selling in Bitcoin, of about or $126 million in Bitcoin at the 2019 time of report. So based on that, the amount of Bitcoin they got mm-hmm. and what Bitcoin was selling for at that point. Yeah, yeah. So- Brian Cripps got a copy of this dump, and we've been talking about some of the analysis from that, and sent it to a consulting firm called Gemini Advisory and a associate professor of computer science and engineering at NYU named Damon McCoy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this is kind of snippets from that, but Krebs has it has it linked, and I'm going to link in the in the show notes the the whole PDF paper of it because it's worth a read if you're interested in this kind of thing we're giving a lot of top line stuff right yeah so of the 27 million cards that they had about a third or so a little bit less than a third well no about a third were sold about 46 percent were credit cards 54 percent were debit so actually pretty even split even split between the two right and uh, according to gemini advisory this was about 30% of the 87 million credit and debit cards that were estimated available uh, that are estimated to be available on the Carter market. Mm-hmm. So this was a, this had a significant amount of the outstanding known black mark of, of the expected size of the black market available. Right. One thing we don't know is how 
whether or not any individual carter sold that stuff more than once to mm-hmm. other marketplaces and stuff like that right yeah exactly over time the median price for cards has been increasing and again, about a third of the records were ever were ever sold there were over 50,000 buyers and 140 resellers in the data set mm-hmm. uh, according to gemini and there's a couple of quotes that i pulled from Krebs article that I thought were pretty instructive. The top 20 buyers bought 5% of the entire set of records in this shop, while the top 100 buyers accounted for 11%. The shop had a total of 1100 or 11,000 bases, bases being uploads of chunks of credit card records, mm-hmm. okay. uh, with most v- uh, vendors uploading multiple bases. Okay. So Things did not typically were not typically one and done, and they were typically uploaded in in batches, mm-hmm. in bulk. Okay. Um, so the next quote was: While larger U.S. banks told us that most of the cards had been previously flagged as compromised, mid and small size financial institutions were caught completely off guard. Mm. As to the European and Asian bank, to them the data was mostly new. In some cases, upward of sixty percent of cards were still open and active. Oh, geez, wow. So what that saying is that things we were talking about earlier about kind of that data interrogation, data analysis side of things, mm. there is an economy of scale to be had and the level of investment by the largest players in the market seems to be paying them a lot of dividends. Right. And these European and Asian banks, at least based on this, do not appear to be attempting to do the same level of thing. And that might be an economy of scale issue. It might mm-hmm. be that some of the rest of their system is working well enough where they don't find themselves having to do it very much. Because the other thing is that the set of credit card records that were the set of payment card records that were sold was definitely biased on the US side. Right. And then Professor McCoy, Damon McCoy, indeed, three years later, the US Federal Reserve estimated that 43% of in-person card payments are still being processed by reading the magnetic stripe instead of the chip. Mm-hmm. This might not have been such a big deal if payment terminals at many of those merchants had not also been compromised with malicious software that copied data when the customers swiped their cards. Mm. Following the 2015 liability ship shift, more than 84% of the non-chip cards advertised by Brian's Club were sold versus just 35% of the chip-based cards in the same time period. So the backstripe only cards were much more valuable. Right. Well, not more valuable, but more reliable to turn over. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so some interesting things about the credit card companies that although Visa cards made up more than half of the accounts put up for sale, twelve point one million, just thirty six percent were sold. Mastercard had the second most plentiful data set, which was um, three point two million, yet fifty four percent were sold. Mm-hmm. And then your next kind of levels were Amex and Discover. And they're interesting because they're closed systems. They're not, they don't use banks as issuers. They issue themselves. Oh, really? They, oh, okay. I didn't yeah. know that. And they were, American Express was about 28.8% and Discover was about 33% of, the, of their stolen cards purchased. So mm-hmm. you figure, given this, that the baseline is about a third. Where okay, Visa yeah. and American Express and Discover are all at that level. MasterCard is the outlier here by enough to be, I think, significant, especially mm. with the number of credit cards we're talking about. Where I mean, of that three and three quarters million rec- records that were MasterCard, half of them sold. 
Right. So like, that's not a trivial amount where we get a weird outlier. That Mm -hmm. looks reasonably significant. Another thing that was interesting was that they were looking at the issuing banks and the regional issuers of cards. There were preferences to areas where they thought where the carters had reason to believe, or at least felt they had reason to believe, we're going to get less scrutiny by the institutions there. Mm, Okay. And so they were targeting those regional issuers, uh, especially, I think it was Missouri, but I'd have to actually go back and check. I forgot to put that in my notes. Um, (laughs) Another thing was that essentially the smaller the institution, the more targeted the buyers were and the more likely they were to be exploited. Because again, going back to what what Gemini said, the small size and mid-size financial institutions were caught completely off guard. Yeah, yeah. So as much as we might want to say that large corporations are just, you know, extra bulk leading to larger inefficiencies. In this case, it looks like that economy of scale really has paid off. Their ability to invest in monitoring of transactions from a data science point of view, as well as throwing the personnel, the customer service side, which Mm -hmm. I think we've all gotten phone calls about various transactions, um, makes a big difference in terms of their losses and their ability to to find those cards. So where I'm going to end is talking about the other side of the equation, because as we've seen less card present fraud, we've seen a lot more card not present fraud. And the solution that they came up with for the card present fraud, the chip, doesn't help us at all in a card not present side. Right. Yeah. And there have been some systems being put in place. I know MasterCard had a system that essentially created a verification of your number and and a one-time number system. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I know Newegg uses that, but they're the only retailer I've interacted that uses a system like that. Interesting. Okay. So I've been considering at some point doing an episode or two uh, called Hackalope Labs, which are on the uh, systems that you've heard me go on and on about when I put my crypto hat on and start trying to play <laughs> with crypto systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. The, essentially the sneak preview of that is that one of the problems is that there's a lot of replayability in the information that is in the credit card record. Mm. And we have the technology to make those transactions non-replayable mm-hmm. and non-reputable. I know this sounds a lot like uh, public key infrastructures and and uh, an asymmetric cryptography because it is. Um, that's the technology that would really make that happen. Um, right. Yeah. We have the technology. We can rebuild it stronger, faster, better. Um, <laughs> and this is fundamentally different from crypto coin from crypto, mm-hmm. cryptocurrency because a you're talking you're not talking about tokens transitioning from one account to another. You're talking mm-hmm. about instead of passing tokens in a reliable way. You want to make a record of a transaction. Instead of moving coins, what you're doing is keeping a double entry bookkeeping set Mm, in a way where nobody can forge an entry in double entry bookkeeping. Now, this gives you some latitude because one of the pieces in cryptocurrency that is in order to maintain any ability to keep things anonymous, you don't have the ability to revoke transactions. There isn't really a system in place to deal with any kind of transaction dispute. And that's not suitable for modern credit card transactions. Right, yeah. 
So straight, just taking what we do with credit cards and replacing that with a cryptocurrency system is not solving the same problem. You are mm -hmm. fundamentally changing the process. And maybe that's something to be talked about, but I personally don't think so. Um, I mm -hmm. think we need more flexibility than a, than a token passing mechanism for the way our current financial system works. And maybe I'm yeah. wrong, but that's my take on it. So I think that, that there is a next generation to come. I've done some thinking on the subject. And I think even if my solution isn't the way to go, that I've identified a lot of the, the specific problems. And that's what we'd end up talking about in that Hackalope Labs uh, thing. But we'll leave with the, with part of the problem, the inherent problem with liability and all of this other stuff is we have turned every retailer, everybody that clears transactions into a security company. And if we made the, the transaction records more secure in terms of their exploitability, mm -hmm. we could concentrate the problem areas to specific points instead of spreading them out to every single retailer. Your credit card is only as secure as the least secure place you've used it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So credit card fraud part two. Man, I'm never going to finish with these background series, am I? Nope. Nope. Never. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.